We have been studying the life of Paul. Our goal next year is to study the, the doctrines that Paul taught, his theology. But this year, we've been studying his life. And as we study his life, what we've been doing is kind of going chronologically through the adventures of what we know about Paul. Uh, it's enabled us to, to go through not only his missionary journeys... But we've tried to plug in an overview, at least, of the letters that Paul wrote during that act- those journeys that he took. And so what we've done the last few weeks is we've looked at a couple of letters he wrote while he was on his third missionary journey. Today, we're going to try and bring his third missionary journey to a close. So we've got to reorient ourselves as to where Paul was. If you recall, we last left Paul in this missionary endeavor when he was in Ephesus for a period of of several years. While in Ephesus for several years, Paul had an opportunity to write multiple letters to the Corinthian church. The second letter that we know of is the letter that is called by us, 1 Corinthians even though we know at that point Paul had already written them before and they'd written Paul before. So Paul wrote that Corinthian letter that we call 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. Paul, after that, left Ephesus. And Paul went journeying on this missionary journey and wound up actually going over to Corinth and appeared up in the Macedonia area. Macedonia were churches that Paul had started on his second missionary journey. They're the church at Philippi. The church at Thessalonica, the church at Berea, among others. And so Paul, while he's up in Macedonia, writes yet another letter to the Corinthian church that we've covered over the last few weeks. This is the one Dr. Trammell covered while we were out of town. It's what we call 2 Corinthians, even though at that point we know it's Paul's at least fourth letter to the church at Corinth. So Paul has written these multiple letters while on this missionary journey. While on the journey, Paul shows up in Corinth, and it's in Corinth where Paul, on this third missionary journey, writes his letter that we looked at last week, and that was a letter to the church at Rome, a church that Paul had never visited, but one where Paul uh, uh, felt an urgent need to write, uh, with also the assurance that he hoped one day to be there. That's where we've got Paul. We remember also from those letters that we've been looking at that Paul had been collecting money from the Greek churches to take back to Jerusalem because there were some starving and needy Christians among the Jewish church there in Jerusalem. And so Paul had been asking, he told the Corinthians, for example, please set aside your money the first day of each week. So when I show up, you're not embarrassed saying, "Uh, we don't have any. Ah, Sorry. Okay. So set it aside ahead of time because I want to be able to take this relief back. And that's what Paul was doing. Paul had his, uh, the Jewish relief campaign, if you will, where he was taking money back uh, for the famine relief and, and the problems that were being held in Jerusalem that were affecting the Christians there. It's really neat to read Luke's history that is contained in Acts because Luke's already detailed to us where Paul has done his mission work. We know Paul was in Greece and did mission work in Athens and in Corinth. We know about Paul's work up in Macedonia at Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi. We also know Paul had been doing mission work in Asia, which would include Ephesus and things in that area. 
in Derby and Lystra and the other towns in southern Galatia, the Galatian churches. And Paul has has done this mission work on his second missionary journey. He's gone back and strengthened these churches on his third missionary journey. And now he's actually taking money from these churches back to Jerusalem. And that's where he's headed. Wants to get there ultimately in time for Pentecost. And so Paul's on his way there. We know Paul's left Corinth. We know the Corinthians had set aside money to take back. And Paul's got that, no doubt, in hand. As Luke tells us about it, Luke tells us that Sopater has joined the group. And Sopater is from Berea. So the Bereans are not just sending money. They're sending someone with the money to go bless the Jewish believers at the home church in Jerusalem. Not only is it Paul and Sopater and some others, but we know that uh, Secundus and uh, uh, Aristarchus from Thessalonica have joined in. And they're headed with their money, their church's contribution. We also know that from Derby, we've got not only Timothy, but we've got a fellow named Gaius, Luke tells us. And Luke is detailing, I mean, Luke's given us their names and addresses. Of these folks who are taking the money down. He tells us there are guys from Asia that are there as well in the group. Now, question. What church doesn't seem to be giving? Ooh, Philippi. At first glance, it might, it, it certainly seems to stick out a little bit if you ever charted on a map that everybody else is given money, but the church at Philippi doesn't seem to have at least anybody traveling with any money. Maybe they just sent the money. Later, Paul will write a letter to that church, and Paul makes it clear the church was always good about giving even when other churches would not. So I would suggest this is a really neat place to scope down and drill down a little bit into Acts. Because if we drill down a little bit into Acts, we get a glimpse of a fact that kind of needs to ride along with what we're going to see here shortly. Okay? Here's the fact. Do you recall when we've been reading through Luke's history called Acts, we've had a couple of passages that we've called the we passages. Not, not we in the sense of we, but we in the sense of us, right? We've had the we passages in Acts. Let me help you remember. When Paul's on his journey earlier and Paul and his crew, they go down to Troas. I don't have Troas. Let's see. Yes, there's Troas. They go down to Troas. That's what Paul, Luke says. They went down to Troas. But in Troas, Paul and his group meet Luke. And so Luke joins Paul and travels with him. And, and what's been they, them, he, they, the whole book of Acts all of a sudden becomes we. They went to Troas and from Troas we set out to sea and we traveled to Philippi. And so Luke has joined the journey at that point. And if you recall, once they're in Philippi, that's where the Philippian jailer is, is uh, converted. But Paul basically leaves Philippi and heads out from there. Luke stays behind in Philippi. They left. So they go to Troas. They join with Luke. We go to Philippi. But then Paul and his troop leave again. They left. Make sense? 
So if we recall Luke's history, Luke stayed behind in Philippi. Now we go back to our little map. We've got all of the churches with someone there. And then in Philippi, the we passages begin again. So it's not that Philippi was left out. It's that Luke was Philippi's representative. And so Philippi is going, the Philippians are sending someone, they're sending Luke. And Luke rejoins Paul for this trip. So the we passages start as Luke details all these different people and says they went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Now I've taken the green off of Asia because it doesn't detail who from Asia. They probably haven't picked that person up yet. Because they're headed to Asia on the way down there. They went on ahead and they were waiting for us at Troas. Luke has joined the group again. Now, the reason I find this interesting is because Luke's going to give us some fascinating history in the next uh, uh, few passages that we're going to look at. And as we look at it, we need to remember Luke is an eyewitness. We're leaving the area where Luke's reporting what others have told him and what he's investigated. And we're entering into an area where Luke is writing from first-hand knowledge. It's what Luke saw. Luke, the doctor, which is important today because he talks like a doctor. And when you read the actual passages out of the Bible, it's fascinating how it changes. Um, it, uh, uh, I hadn't planned on doing this. Does someone have a pen I could borrow? It's, it's fascinating the way Paul works this out. Um, Paul decides to return through Macedonia. You see, he says, So Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, who's from around that area, the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Okay. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So look, he's now putting in here the time they went. In five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week. And he's going to tell a story. But as he continues to do that, and we're going to get to the story in a minute. But while I've got this open here, look at what he says. Paul decides to go by land. He met us at Asos. We took him on board. We went to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we came the following day, opposite Chios. The next day, at Samos. The day after that, Miletus. This is a first-hand narrative. This is a fellow who's not saying, Paul went through the country. He's saying, okay, we sailed from here to here in one day. Next day, we went to here. And if you read any ancient histories in in, from the time, Greek histories. Uh, that's the way Greek historians wrote. They wrote from a very, you know, point to point to point to point. You couldn't just get a random McNally map or atlas. Photos, books were coming out very rarely. And so histories served also as travel books. And the historians were careful to record, you know, you'd go from this island to that island and it'd take about a day. And then you'd go from here to here. And that could take five days if the winds were bad and da-da-da-da-da. That's the way Luke's writing. 
And, and I make an underscore of this because there are a lot of scholars. Ah, choir's out. Y'all come on in. We've kind of been waiting for you for this story. And we really have. We're dawdling. Okay, well, get your lesson. Come on. The, uh, um, it's, it's fascinating to me because there are a lot of critical scholars who read the, the book of Acts and decide it's written 150 years later and it's written for all these other agendas and it's far from being an eyewitness and all the rest. And that to me is just blind, nonsensical silliness. Because if you just read the book for what it says, it's so apparent to anybody with, with uh, uh, half of their brain working that that's what's happening here. This is written by an eyewitness who's very clear in the way he writes. So with that, let's follow the eyewitness account and let's get into a couple of stories that Luke saw and details to us. The first one I want to tell you about happens at Troas. Now, Troas is where Luke meets up with Paul and the group. Paul goes to Troas, and while Paul is at Troas, he starts speaking. He starts teaching. There are ruins at Troas, which have been overgrown with weeds. We don't have a lot there to go back and look at, but we throw a slide up there so it gets us oriented at least a little bit. Paul starts teaching probably in the evening, maybe around 6 o'clock. It would be after everybody had had a day of work. First day of the week was a, a Sunday, we think of it as, but that was a work day back then for them. And so a lot of the people would have worked. And Paul sits and meets with the house church and starts his teaching. Scholars say generally probably around 6 p.m. He's a talker. He starts talking. Clock rolls around 8 p.m. He's still teaching. Clock rolls around 10 p.m. He's still going. He's like the ever-ready battery bunny rabbit of, of speaking. Midnight. He's still teaching. Six hours. He's got a lot to say. He's on a roll. He's going. Well, there's this fella among those listening. The fella's name's Eutychus. And Eutychus is there at this house church where they're meeting. Well, it's not really a house church. It's more a, an apartment church, a tenement church. Because they're meeting in the third floor of what would the Romans called an insula. What it was an apartment complex. Generally, there'd be shops on the first floor, second floor, third floor. This is where people lived. And these are generally middle to lower class people. The rich people had their first floor villas. Okay? And you'd read about the rich people always entertaining on the first floor. But when you're in an upper room like this in that part of the country, that part of the world, you're generally dealing with someone who's in the lower earning classes. And so Paul is up in the third floor. Now, we've got some ruins here that kind of give you an indication. You can kind of bounce up and see where the third floor area might be. At night, even during the day, you're not going to have a lot of light in there. You know, we've got to remember they don't have electricity. What they're doing is they're burning olive oil in these lamps. So they've got these little lamps that, and I've, I've put one up there with a gentleman holding it so you can get an idea of the size of most of these. Now they had bigger ones. They had some that had up to six holes to burn. But these are little olive oil lamps. And they light the olive oil and it burns. And it sets out a smoky, pungent odor. 
and it sets out some light. Luke, the doctor, the eyewitness, says there were a whole lot of them lit in the room. I'm sure everybody wanted to be able to see Paul well. And don't you know, after a few hours, after a long day work, you've been working eight, ten hours out in that hot sun, and then you get in the room, and it's getting dark, darkness is coming outside, and the lamps are lit, and it starts smelling in the smoky haze, and Paul's going on and on and on, hour after hour after blessed apostolic hour. Well, there's this young man. His name is Eutychus. Eutychus is Greek. It means lucky. Old Lucky is listening to Paul sitting in a window on the third floor. I put this up here because that's about one floor. So get about three of those. And that's the window he's looking in. Eutychus falls asleep while Paul's talking up in this third floor window. And Luke, the physician, the eyewitness, writes beautiful Greek here that we kind of lose. I couldn't find a good English version that really picked it up. Here's what Luke says in, in, in real everyday doctor medical terminology. He says, Basically, Eutychus started nodding off, getting drowsy, and he just he's, finally loses it, and he goes to sleep. And he starts sleeping. And it doesn't get any better. He gets into a really deep sleep. And... He falls three stories to the ground. Is there a doctor in the house? Luke. Right here, fresh in from Philippi. They go down, they check the boy out. Old Lucky is dead. He's dead. I mean, it, it knocked the wind out of him. It knocked it totally out. He's gone. The doctor, Luke is a little bit outside of his element at this point and of really no big use to old Lucky. But Paul is there. And Paul goes downstairs. And Paul takes Lucky. He cradles him in his arms. And we don't know the details of what he did after that how Paul prayed, what Paul said, any magic, because there was no magic. It wasn't what Paul did. God worked a miracle. Paul sets Lucky back down to the ground and says, he's not dead now. He's going to be okay. Paul heals Lucky and goes back upstairs and says, I'm hungry. (laughs) And he eats. And then... He starts talking again. He, as the English Standard Version says, converses. 
Now, we're going to pause for just a moment because this is a wonderful place to... Some of you write me emails saying, I hate the word stuff. Others of you do write emails that say, I love the word stuff. You hate the word stuff, here's your chance to be lucky and go to sleep. You like the word stuff. This is a great passage because that word converso, the Greek word is homolasis. Uh, homolasos, I should do better. I'm from Lubbock. Um, homolasos, you see, I've written it down in Greek letters down below. You'll notice it looks like a, a, a um, what's a, an apostrophe before the O. That's actually in the Greek written above the O. The apostrophe when it's facing that way, like a C, means heavy breathing. <sighs> That's the H sound because the Greek doesn't have an H in the alphabet. So the H sound is the when you have that apostrophe that looks like a C. If it's the other way, then there's no heavy breathing. But when it's that way, you go <sighs> at the start of your word. So it's homilasis. Okay? That's why when you're writing it in English, you add an H. Because we have an H and we don't have heavy breathing on our alphabet. The Greek word homolasos is the word for converse. Now, if you're reading your footnote where I've already put the answer, you can bask in knowing it, but you cannot shout it out because it makes you look smarter than you are and we don't put on airs. That said, anybody care to guess what English word we get from this? Homily, which is in a high church, a word you might use for a sermon. If you go to seminary, you might take a course in homiletics, which is a course in preaching. The English word is homily, comes straight from the Greek. Now, Jerome, in about 350 years, is going to translate this passage into Latin. He's going to use a Latin word for converse. The Latin word is sermo. Anybody care to guess what English word we get from that? Sermon! Man, Paul could preach all night long. And that's what Paul does. At that point, Paul leaves Troas and he's headed down. He wants to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. He's in a hurry. They cannot ride boats. It's illegal in the Roman Empire to ship out on the sea during the winter months because the weather was so bad. So the sailing season has only begun just recently. It really pushes it for Paul to make it down to Jerusalem in time. Paul's in a big hurry, decides, I can't afford the time to go to Ephesus. He, it's one of those things where he'd worked there for three years. He had so many friends and so many enemies. It's just, it's just not going to work. He's going to get too bogged down. And so Paul, instead of going to Ephesus, puts in at a place 30 miles outside of Ephesus called Miletus. And Paul sends someone to go get the elders from the church at Ephesus and bring the elders down to Miletus. Paul meets with the elders. Would have taken probably five days for them to get there. Two to get the messenger up there, three for him to get their stuff and get back down. So Paul meets with the elders in Miletus. And this is an interesting meeting. It's a fascinating one to read. When you read it, you really see Paul in the words. 
So you can tell Luke's an eyewitness because he's using words and ideas that echo what Paul obviously has in his preaching. It echoes what we read in the letters Paul's been writing. The letter to the Romans, the letters to the Corinthian churches, these recent writings of Paul that show the phrases and the ideas and the things that are on his heart at the time are echoed as Paul gives this speech. But it's also Luke is the eyewitness because Luke, you know, half of it just looks real Pauline, the other half reads real Luke. So it's Luke using Luke's words to, to condense down what was probably a several hour meeting into a dozen or so verses. And so we have Luke doing it. Here's what Paul basically says. He says, you remember how I walked among you. You remember how I served you. I was never looking to be your Lord. I was looking to be your servant. With humility, I served you. I served you through trials. I served you through tears. I tried to be what God wanted me to be for you. That's all that mattered to me. And as I did this, you, you, you remember I was faithful to God as I did it. I testified to you about repentance, by the way. That's one of those Luke words. Paul uses repentance three times in his writings. When you write 13 letters and you only use that word repent three times, that's pretty sparse. Now, the idea of repentance is throughout Paul's writings. It's just the Greek word he doesn't use that much. The Greek word means a turning of the mind. He doesn't use the Greek word that much. Luke loves that word. Luke uses it dozens of times in Luke and Acts. The idea Paul teaches, the word's very Luke, okay? So, but Paul says to him, he says, and Paul probably said it in paragraphs. Luke puts it into a word. But he says, I taught you the importance of turning away from idols and turning away from the things that, that occupy your heart and your mind and turning away from the things of this world so that your heart is turned to God. And I taught you about faith. Paul, though, I've, I've made an error as I've spoken just now. Paul never says, I taught you. Paul says, I testified. There's a difference. Taught is real easy. Taught is, let me tell you about faith. Let me teach you. Testified is, let me explain to you how in my life God has made a difference. See, Paul could testify to repentance because Paul persecuted the church. He was a persecutor of the church who turned his mind. He repented to God and said, instead of being of this mind, God, I will be different. Paul could testify to faith in Christ because it's something Paul had experienced. The picture I chose for this is Paul falling down on the road to Damascus. Because the faith that Paul had, I mean, I am amazed at the faith of Paul. The faith of Paul makes a difference in my life. The faith of Paul. Because I'm convinced reading his writings, he's not a raving lunatic. And yet this is a man who truly gave it all away and made deliberate choices that he knew would ultimately lead to his demise. And unless you're a nutcase, you don't do that. Save for the fact that there's truth behind 
the revelation of Jesus Christ. This was not the kind of thing where over the next 10 years, Paul, or 15 years, or 20 years, Paul thought, I wonder how valid that was. Paul knew the hand of God on his heart and in his life, and there was no doubting in his mind. So Paul's able to testify to repentance and faith. He reminds him. Then Paul says to him, he says, look, there are dark clouds in front. I can hear the distant thunder. I know that my days are numbered. And for the first time in our study of Paul, we start to turn this corner. Because Paul sees his road will come to an end. And Paul is desperate, recognizing that he doesn't have a lot longer. Oh, he's still hoping to make it to Rome. He wants to get to Spain. But Paul knows as he meets with these elders that he loved that he lived with, that he nurtured, that he brought into the faith. In Ephesus, where he lived longer than any other time, any other place really in his mission trips. Paul knows this is the last time he's going to see him. And Paul says, I'm okay with this. Because there's a fork in the road. And there's a... One of those forks goes through hard times, dark clouds, difficulties, maybe ultimately death. But I know that that fork that goes through hard times is the fork that leads to God's glory and God's presence. So I'm going to walk it. I'm going to walk it. Paul was not looking for a bed of roses. Paul was looking for God's glory and God's presence. So he says, with tears, this is my last goodbye to you. And I love what he told the elders. Here's his parting charge. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And he finishes with this. Work hard. Help the weak. Remember, Jesus was the one who said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And Luke says, the eyewitness says that all of them kneeled in prayer and they were crying and they were hugging each other. There was a great deal of sorrow because they knew not only that Paul was leaving, but that they would never see him again. And that's touching. So Paul leaves, gets on another boat, and the boat sails, and they go into Caesarea, which is the port 60 miles outside of Jerusalem. While they're in Caesarea, getting ready to go up to Jerusalem, they stay with Philip, the evangelist. Not to be confused with Philip, the apostle. They stay with Philip, the evangelist. It's going to be interesting when we get to Jerusalem next week, God willing. We'll see that all the apostles at this point look like they're gone. And we'll look at a little church history to tell us why and where they've gone. But uh, uh, Paul, Luke, and others, the whole group, stay with Philip the Evangelist. Now, Philip's there. Philip's got four unmarried daughters who are prophetesses. They're prophets. They prophesy. Um, 
They stay with Philip. Now, where did we hear of Philip? Do you remember? Luke has told us about Philip before, though I'm sure this is Luke's first time to meet him. Philip was the one who earlier in Acts had been told to go down on a road where Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah. And Philip, the evangelist, is the one who says, hey, you understand that? Ethiopian eunuch says, no, not really. Let me explain it to you. And teaches him about Jesus. Ethiopian eunuch says, there's water. Why can't I be baptized now? Philip says, you can. And Philip baptizes him. And then it says, Philip was caught up in the spirit. Philip goes back to Caesarea. That's the Philip. Now, this is really cool to me. Because Luke started out his history. You know, his history is in two parts, right? The Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts. So if you want to see how he starts out writing his history, you go to the very beginning. You go to the Gospel of Luke. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. What Luke was writing, Luke got from eyewitnesses. So when Luke wrote the story about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, don't you know Philip was sitting in there, I mean Luke was sitting there just taking notes during this visit. Well, tell me how God's worked in your life, Philip. Philip the evangelist, tell me how you've evangelized. Philip, oh, Luke, let me tell you. I got caught up in the spirit. I was told by God to go to the road. I bump into this guy from Ethiopia. He's a eunuch. He's reading and details the story. And Luke's sitting there taking it down. And we've got it. Sometimes we read through this so quickly, we don't pause to understand how real this really is. These are real events we're looking at. This is God's thumbprint in real space and time in history. So while they're having these discussions and while everybody's being edified and everybody's testifying to God's faithfulness and and things like this, in comes a prophet, a fellow who prophesies, Agabus. And Agabus we've read about earlier too in Acts. So Luke must have had a chance to visit with him. Because Luke earlier said Agabus is the one who prophesied a famine coming, which actually came during the reign of Claudius. So Agabus comes in, and Agabus says to Paul, I need your belt, I need your your sash. Takes it and ties Paul's hands as a prophecy, and then says, this is a prophecy. You're going to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. In Jerusalem, you're going to be... uh, 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 you're going to, you're going to, the Jews will tie you up and bind you and hand you over to the Gentiles. Well, at this point in time, the folks who are with Paul say, stop, then don't go. This seems to be a pretty clear indication from the Lord. He sent a prophet over here to tell you what was going to happen. So out of personal safety and our concern and fear, please don't follow through with your word. Don't go to Jerusalem. Paul's response is wonderful. Paul's response is, what are you doing? 
weeping and pounding my heart. Now let's pause and look at the picture. The word pounding my heart that I've translated there is because it literally means just beating the fire out of your clothes when you're washing them on the rocks. That's the picture image. It's that woman who is just pounding away at that rug to get it clean down at the rocks. Paul says, why are you doing that to my heart? I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but I'm ready to die in Jerusalem for the sake of our Lord Jesus. I'm not. You know, and, and I, I, this is a petty way to look at this. I'll confess that at the outset. But it's, it's the thought I can't get out of my brain. You know, I've been in the dental chair. I told you it's petty. Okay? When the dentist decides the, to drill into my teeth, I get the pain shot. I try and talk them into the laughing gas because I am a baby. And I sit there and I think, I don't want to do this, but I need to do it, so I'm just going to do it. But you have to just set your mind to it and go through it. Now, that's a petty, silly example. But the attitude, if we could hype it up numbers and notches beyond what I've done, is this. You've got something in front of you that's going to be unpleasant. You might be able to avoid it, but if it's the right thing to do, you do it. You just set your face like steel and say, I'm going to do it, friend. You've got something in front of you that you've got to do. It's not going to be fun. It might be painful. You might have trials and tribulations. It might ultimately result in your death. But the faithful testimony to God... The faithful testimony to God is his grace is sufficient and I'm going to walk through this. I don't walk alone. So points for home. Poor Lucky. You know, it's one thing to fall asleep during church. It's another thing to have it written up in God's holy word that lasts for eternity. <laughs> and to have your name put in there. Especially when your name is such a goofy one for what happened. It does not escape Luke's attention. Luke knew what Eutychus meant because Eutychus, in Greek, is lucky. So if we were writing the story in English, we would have said lucky. And Luke's got to just think it's absolutely hilarious as he's writing it down. Oh, lucky up in the window. Woo! down he go bam don't you know lucky was telling the story for the rest of his life i ever tell you hey grandpa tell us about the time grandpa lucky tell us about the time you fell asleep when paul was preaching well he'd been going on for hours it was a dark room on the third floor god's power is made perfect in weakness I don't know if you've ever fallen flat on your face in some humiliation and embarrassment. But that's okay. 
God's power is made perfect in weakness. I tell you, I preached one of the first sermons I preached. I preached a what I thought was a tremendous sermon. 30 minutes I stood up there and told them about Noah and the whale. Next point for home. I've, I've never preached on Jonah since for fear I would say Noah throughout the sermon. Then there was the trial where I called my client the wrong name for weeks. Um, next point. Paul leaves the elders and it's such a touching scene. And it reminds me of what Paul wrote later to the Philippian church. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort for love, if there's any participation in the spirit, if there's any affection, if there's any sympathy, make my joy complete by being in full accord, by being of one mind. What we're about here, folks, is not being a rotary club. And I respect the Rotarians. But this is not a social club. This is not just a meeting place where we all get together. We're family. We're family. And we need to appreciate that. It's a wonderful blessing. And we need to love each other and tend to each other and care for each other. And finally, if you're one of those folks who have that stop sign and people are urging you not to go, take the easy road. If you've got some difficulties in your life in front of you, heavens, maybe you're facing death. I just really urge you to know that God is not a part-time God. There is nothing else in life that's got value beyond knowing Jesus. Paul says anything else is garbage. It's rubbish. He says, I consider, I'd live my life in a heartbeat. He says, the only value of me staying here is I'm ministering to you. But for me personally, it's so much better to go home and be with Jesus. It's not even funny. I'm content to stay here if God's got ministry for me. But this is not my home. Remember the song, the world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I don't feel at home in this world anymore. I urge you, I urge you, and this is my closing. Don't get caught up in the pleasures and the comforts of this world. They're beguiling at best. They're seductive. They're attractive. They feel really nice for the temporary moment they last. But they are garbage compared to knowing Jesus Christ and living with a purpose in your life that allows you, no, no matter what happens, to set your face like steel and say, I am going to the Lord. And everything that happens to me on the way, I redefine in terms of ministry opportunities and in terms of trials and tribulations that strengthen my faith and my perseverance because I'm headed home to my God and my Father. And that's where I'm going to be for eternity. And this is just the road that gets me there. And I'm not getting off the road to go play in the roses just because they smell good. 
And I'm not getting off the road because there's a storm cloud and it's raining on the road. I'm on this road because my God told me to be on this road and he told me if I'd walk it to the end, he would be with me all the way and at the end he would take me home. And that's what I'm doing. Praise God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do applaud you for for who you are. For taking for creating a vast universe and then taking a personal interest in each one of us and calling us by name. For taking time to make a road for each one of us where you promise us you're on that road. Whether it goes through mountains or goes through dark valleys, whether it goes through rain clouds or whether it's a beautiful day of sunshine and blessing. You are with us. And this is a road with direction, a path that you have made straight. And I pray for every brother and sister in here and every person that doesn't know you. That your spirit will reveal to them the truth of who you are and what you have done. And the hope and assurance and confidence we have of where tomorrow lies in your care and in your wisdom. Bless us, Lord, as you have before with a growing knowledge of who you are. I thank you so much for the chance to work with this class. We pray through our Savior and Lord Jesus. Amen.